Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we're discussing the first section of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. So let's get into it. All right. So the first thing I want to do, as I kind of mentioned early on, is just go through the literary references. And I'm just going to give some context around them. And then, Glenn, I want you to let me know if this impacts your reading of the story so far, if it if it highlights anything new to you about what we're doing. And I'm going to actually start with the opening paragraph of the story rather than the epigraph, because I think we can draw some interesting connections between the Rime of the Ancient Mariner and the episode of Polyphemus and Odysseus that comes up in the story. So the opening paragraph of this story is inspired by and meant to evoke the opening of Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. And as I said before, I'm going to read the first paragraph of the book as Moncrief translates it. Firstly, because it's a beautiful passage. And secondly, because I think we're meant to really draw connections between the unnamed narrator in Search of Lost Time, who we later learn in that series of novels is named Marcel, and the unnamed narrator in Fifth Head. And we've talked a little bit about the name games that are being played here, but this is just another example. Proust writes and and Moncrief translates this. For a long time, I used to go to bed early. Sometimes, when I had put out my candle, my eyes would close so quickly that I had not even time to say, I'm going to sleep. And half an hour later, the thought that it was time to go to sleep would awaken me. I would try to put away the book which I imagined was still in my hands and to blow out the light. I had been thinking all the time while I was asleep of what I had just been reading, but my thoughts had run into a channel of their own, until I myself seemed actually to have become the subject of my book, a church, a quartet, the rivalry between Francois I and Charles V. This impression would persist for some moments after I was awake. It did not disturb my mind, but it lay like scales upon my eyes and prevented them from registering the fact that the candle was no longer burning. Then it would begin to seem unintelligible, as though the thoughts of a former existence must be to a reincarnate spirit. The subject of my book would separate itself from me, leaving me free to choose whether I would form part of it or no. And at the same time, my sight would return, and I would be astonished to find myself in a state of darkness, pleasant and restful enough for the eyes, and even more, perhaps, for my mind, to which it appeared incomprehensible, without a cause, a matter dark indeed. So I'm just going to point out some of the similarities here, I guess, before I ask you to respond, Glenn. First, we have a a line that is very similar to the first line. And we know from some of Wolf's comments in the best of Gene Wolf that follow his stories, that when he was desperate to write a story, he would open up something from a novelist he loved and just turn it into a science fiction story. And yeah, it's a great technique. <laughs> yeah, it's a great technique. And so I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. But one thing he really keeps in the first paragraph of fifth head is this play of light, this sense of light and darkness, and the importance of storytelling at bedtime. 
Yes, it's so interesting how they're doing different things with it, though. What you just read to us, you know, and I don't have the text in front of me, so now I'm going to just be going from my memory of what you've just read for us. It's almost like the beginning state is darkness, that he, he's, he awakes in the darkness and is sort of confused about what is really going on and, and confused perhaps even about what's real in terms of his imagination and in terms of his memory and what is actually happening in his present. But Wolf inverts that, that the state that we begin in is this state of light. And the boys are really wishing, the narrator at least, really wishing for darkness, right? He says that he wanted that vine to keep growing and to cover their entire window so that it would be dark enough for them to be able to go to sleep. And maybe that's another contrast there is that our narrator here struggles to sleep even in in childhood, whereas the narrator for Proust falls asleep without even realizing that he's fallen asleep. From the moment that he he blows out that candle, he falls asleep without even thinking, it is now time to go to sleep. I mean, these contrasts are great. So Wolf has not just said, well, I'm going to adapt that into a science fiction setting. He's playing with it in in the greatest way, in the way that the great classical poets of the ancient Mediterranean do with each other's works. You highlighted a lot of really fascinating stuff that I think this narrator is in some ways an inverse of the narrator of Swan's Way. The narrator of Swan's Way doesn't really give a sense of certainty about his past. He is just remembering. He's trying to recover his past. But from this opening 50 or 60 pages of Swan's Way, we are fully informed of his state of mind that he is perhaps at so far a distance or looking at it from the mind of a child or combining his memories to make sense of it where what wolf is doing with this narrator is doing some memory recall but giving the narrator a voice of certainty and confidence and using language to create questions of distance but to the reader who's not careful, you'd have no reason to question anything the narrator of Fifth Head is saying. And like you said, he is playing with these ideas in such a wonderful way. You see, I think even their motive for thinking about their lives are perhaps different. Certainly the, the circumstances are different. I mean, I think it's, it's clear at this point, although we don't have all of the details yet, we're going to get more of them. But it's clear even just in this first section, these first 11 pages that we've covered today, that our narrator has been traumatized. Something has happened to him. And that recovering these memories of his youth, of his childhood, is how he's going to recover his identity, or at least the person he used to be, this identity he used to have before he was a prisoner. That this is, in fact, really an archaeological excavation. He is touring his childhood home. He is looking for artifacts in the home and using them to make conclusions about what his childhood must have been like, what he supposes it must have been like. And I think that this incident here in the library where these boys are having to argue about the pros and cons of doing 
that type of exercise to understand a civilization is Wolf highlighting that it's also maybe not clear that you can do that for an individual as well, that you can, from the same material, draw completely opposed interpretations, both of which could be right, not necessarily at the same time, either of which maybe could be right is what I I really should say, but also either of which could be totally wrong, and there is no objective way to test those conclusions. That's the project he's involved in here. Yeah, and we've highlighted some examples in the text during the recap where that is absolutely taking place, and that's a really great summary of this kind of project that the narrator is engaging on. I'm going to move on to the epigraph now because we could talk about Proust and narrative techniques uh, forever. (laughs) So uh, as I mentioned, the epigraph is taken from part seven of the Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And the epigraph is part of a section that describes the dead boat, this husk of a boat that the mariner is laying on being piloted by these angels to the hermit. It is a a lot of holy imagery going on here. And this hermit is a holy man. And the pious hermit is the one who's describing the boat. So I'm not going to read this whole section. I'm just going to read the description of the boat where this epigraph comes up, which is spoken by the hermit. It is beautiful and also very wolfy. So here's the description of the boat as the hermit is looking out on the ancient mariner. The planks look warped and see those sails, how thin they are and sear. I never saw aught like them unless perchance it were brown skeletons of leaves that lag my forest brook along when the ivy tod is heavy with snow and the allet whoops to the wolf below that eats the she-wolf's young. What's interesting here is that Wolf cuts the first line there, probably because he has to, but it gives the rhyme with young. My forest brook along is meant to rhyme with young. It's an A-B-B-A line in poetry, but it's also describing this boat that looks dead in a dead season that slows life and slows the environment of this hermit. So, just based on that and the kind of the context here, Glenn, and also the angel imagery, but also the predatory imagery and the seasonal imagery, does that do anything to your reading of maybe these first 11 or so pages? Something that actually really jumped out at me, even though I also read, read the same passage you know, to open up the recap, I hadn't noticed the contrast between the epigraph and then our opening description that the epigraph is reliant on this imagery of winter, and then we immediately go to summer. Wolf opens in summer with light rather than darkness, with sunshine rather than snow. I think that's a really beautiful contrast that I just missed in the reading of it. I feel like I did a bad job of being a reader there, not even picking up the existence of that contrast. I'm not quite sure what to do with that, but something else that jumped out at me while you were reading is going back to this scene in the library when the narrator pokes his head out. And you, I think, very astutely pointed out that he's being something of an owl. He has a bird's eye view from up there and is, in fact, intentionally looking down at the Maison de Chêne, the house of the dog or the wolf while he's doing that. But Wolf, Gene Wolf, the writer of this story, 
is so careful to point out there that there are sailing ships in the harbor that he also sees there, that the ocean that is out there and the ships that are on that are an important part of this city of Port Mimizon. It's in the name of the the city that it is a port. So he's clearly wanting this image to suffuse our our reading of this setting, even here just in these first 11 pages, though I'm not, I don't have any specific thematic readings of that. I, I don't know, you probably have some. It may be too early to make any real claims about the full thematic reading of this moment, but I do want to reiterate what you just brought up, which is that this notion of like ships or shipwrecks or this sense of like a dead boat or something like that is oddly important to this story. And that may be a wild misreading of the imagery that Wolf wants us to pay attention to. My sense is that it has something to do with the dead aboriginals, that they're, they have made the journey from St. Anne to this planet where there were none, and something horrible has happened, and there's something going on there with this imagery of shipwreck and disaster and death and the winter season, and also the nature of the narrator as as kind of predatory, but it's just his nature. It's, it's something in his nature he can't escape. This is all just, as I said, speculation. I, I really don't remember much of this story, though I've read this section like 14 times this week to prepare. Yeah, I mean, me too, and um, I don't regret a single one of no, them. No, no, it's so good. So I just want our listeners to keep this in mind, that this epigraph is actually about a shipwreck, and it is about returning to a holy place with the remembrance of death in some way. Glenn, I I just want to say that you reminded me that we have this winter imagery followed immediately by summer imagery. And this is absolutely important to the technique of the story. We are going really soon to explore all of these crazy dichotomies that Wolf presents us with on every level of this story. I'm going to call them binary systems, though that's a stupid name for them. They really are just dichotomies of two. Before we do that, though, I I want to hit the shipwreck thing again with talking about Polyphemus and Odysseus. This is important, I think, for a number of reasons. First of all, I'll just recap the episode. Odysseus is is shipwrecked somewhere, and he is basically engaged in a game of cleverness with this massive Cyclops, who is the son of Poseidon, the descendant of another race of intelligent beings entirely. And Odysseus being shipwrecked there needs a way to escape. Polyphemus is eating all of his companions, and he tells Polyphemus that his name is No Man, and he sharpens an olive trunk, and he stabs him in the eye, and they escape, and Polyphemus tells Poseidon, his father, that uh, he has to catch him, and, and Poseidon is, I don't know, he's whatever, like Odysseus has the blessings of the gods. Classical epic was actually the first graduate course I took when I was doing my master's degree in classics in uh, in Colorado, which was something I started, in fact, really the, the same month you and I met, Brandon. So this is really all coming full circle for me here. I think it's important to note that there are two things going on with Odysseus's trickery with Polyphemus. One is that he does say that he is no one that he, he has no identity, that he's not a person. He almost denies his identity in order to trick Polyphemus. The other thing he does is that he 
straps himself to the belly of a sheep so that he will not be detected, so that he will appear to be nothing other than a sheep. So there are two ways that Odysseus is playing with his own identity and manipulating the nature of his identity in order to trick Polyphemus. And I guess really just to highlight the no one or no man bit there is that Odysseus is saying, I am no one. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not any person in particular. But Polyphemus hears that as a name. He hears the denial of identity as a marker of identity is a brilliant bit of literature in the Odyssey. Wolf, always toying with identity, clearly has this in mind when he's invoking this passage. Yeah, and my suspicion is that this is going to be a crucial bit of not only Fifth Head of Cerberus, but the whole trilogy of novellas. The other thing I wanted to highlight here, and thank you, Glenn, so much for, for elucidating uh, kind of where, again, my, my uh, ignorance shines forth, is that thematically and immediately relevant in the 10 pages we read is this question of two races of intelligent beings. And we have one who is a descendant, a child of a god, and one who is a child of man who is recognized as a human being unquestionably. And this is actually the question at play in the classroom when they are discussing these things. And I think it's meant to at least hint to us as readers and perhaps somewhere in the dark recesses of our narrator's mind that the aboriginals are as human, if not human themselves, and that some trickery is afoot in this relationship between humanity and the abos of St. Anne. Interesting in that dichotomy between fully human and, and anthrops in Greek and demigods, or at least the children of gods, the creatures of Poseidon, is that the fundamental feature or fundamental characteristic of Odysseus, sometimes just because it fits the meter really well, is that he is clever that he is a trickster, he's a deceiver. And we see that really emphasized in the Polyphemus episode. He's sophisticated, he has book learning and uses it to be a liar, to be a trickster, to manipulate meaning, to manipulate reality with his words. The children of the god are simple and frankly kind of stupid, which is why they are susceptible to Odysseus's trickery. They're primitive, they only have one eye, not two, so they can clearly only see half of what a human can see. They're also just shepherds. They don't have civilization. They don't have society. They don't really have culture. They're alone. They're primitive is how we would describe them. Wolf uses that same word to describe the abos. I didn't use it because I was, when I was doing the recap, was really thinking about how I would approach this if I were a scholar working on this problem. And I would never use the word primitive because it implies a, a teleology, which is something we try to shed as scholars. But it's implicit here in this scene in the Odyssey. And Wolf uses the word primitive to describe the abos because he is thinking about this scene. 
And it does suggest to me that we are going to get something more about the Abos and perhaps their relationship with divinity and how maybe that's related to their simplicity. I mean, this is me just spitballing here, thinking about things Wolf has done in the past and, and thinking about, you know, I don't know if I were writing this story where I might go with this 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 imagery. Well, that is a question I'm going to pose to you <laughs> All right, <laughs> in not too long uh, a time here. So the last point I want to make here is the last explicit connection between this story and the Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which may have bearing on the themes of Fifth Head of Cerberus, either as a novella or as a trilogy of novellas, which is a story of a shipwrecked person trying to survive in a new world. This is Odysseus, the survivor, telling the story to somebody at this point in in the Odyssey, the same way the rhyme of the ancient mariner is the story of a shipwrecked survivor telling the story. And in rhyme of the ancient mariner, there's much more Christian symbolism here. This is a wedding. This is a great wedding feast, which is where Christ performed his first miracle. It's the imagery of the relationship between Christ and the church. And the rhyme of the ancient mariner is a story of fallenness and redemption. So, These are themes heavily at play in this story that I hope we'll be able to explore as we dive deeper into this great trilogy of novellas. Yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, I hadn't thought about this before, but Odysseus is the ancient mariner. And that just somehow in all my readings of this poem, I mean, the the Norton anthology of Coleridge is literally right over my left shoulder as we're having this conversation that it just never occurred to me before. So that that's that's really something extraordinarily valuable that I've I've learned from you here recording this episode. But thinking about other ancient mariners, I think that we might there might be actually an ancient mariner who we've met in this story, so to speak. Anyway, uh, we'll find out perhaps some more of that about that later. But there is also thinking about redemption. I mean, there is so, already some religious imagery happening here in this story. You've pointed out David, uh, the brother of the narrator, as the King David, who is uh, we meet him. The first imagery we get of him is him in his innocence, someone who plays the panpipes. We might also note that David is initially a shepherd, just like Polyphemus. Uh, maybe that's what's drawing David to this scene in his illustrated tales. He likes the sheep. He doesn't care about the identity and the trickery. But David is someone who falls and requires redemption in his story. And I think we should probably point out as well, the name of the sister planet of the one that we're on is St. Anne, and that's extraordinarily important. Right. St. Anne is the name given to Mary's mother. And this is more of a Christian tradition, a Catholic tradition, than explicit in scriptures. But given that she's in the genealogy of Mary, it puts her in the genealogy of David. St. Anne, Anne, the grandmother of Jesus, is a descendant of King David. And and this is another point that kind of triples down on, on the fact that we're meant to draw special significance from the name David as the brother of the narrator and as the light brother of the narrator as well. Perhaps it also speaks to the nature of the aboriginals who are native to that planet too. And I think this is as good a level as any. We can start at the cosmic level and move down to the personal level to talk about these binary systems, the first of which are the planets. 
I think as we've hinted at, maybe we're explicitly meant to compare or understand St. Anne and David as being similar in some way. So St. Anne is the better planet. It is, I think, if we're going to take St. Anne and David together in terms of Wolf's symbolism using biblical imagery, it is the lighter planet. It is the place of better things. And this is like where the not just the pan pipe, but the pan imagery comes in, where if you connect St. Anne with David, the musician, the maker of pan pipes, the associate of Pan, the god, you have St. Anne as a place of frivolity and joy, of simpleness, of simple pleasures, of maybe even um, complex hedonic pleasures, but, but really pleasure. And I think we're supposed to make that connection. And that leaves the planet we're on, and maybe the comparison to the narrator, to be a darker and worse place. Yeah, I think that's right. We, we don't have a lot of information about the two planets just yet, but just from the fact that St. Anne developed sentient life and the planet we're on now didn't, it's also clear that, I mean, this is a space-faring civilization, but yet Port Mimizon, the planet that we're on, feels like it's the Gilded Age of 19th century America. They don't have combustible engines on anything. This is clearly a backwater of this spacefaring civilization, whereas St. Anne seems like it's still connected. They have star crossers. You know, it's clear that we don't see a star crosser going from this planet to St. Anne. It's coming from St. Anne to this planet that there is a contrast in level of civilization, which also we might really even think back about the contrast between Odysseus and Polyphemus there as well. One other thing I want to say about something that you brought up, Brandon, is that, yeah, St. Anne is super interesting as a figure. She is the grandmother, the maternal grandmother of Christ. She's not mentioned in anything that is considered scripture now. She is mentioned in the Gospel of James, which is a text that many Christian communities thought of as scripture in the second uh, and third and early fourth century and prior to the Council of Nicaea. Though we should also say that still many Christian communities were using it after the Council of Nicaea, but by about the year 500, people weren't really using the the text anymore. But this is the the Gospel of James. This is James, the brother of Christ. So this brother imagery, this dichotomy is here, even in the texts and the traditions that Wolf is drawing on to name these planets. I'm excited to learn what is the name of the planet that we're on so that we can really carry this sort of binary or this, these dichotomies uh, one step further. There is so much at play here in these names, these, these images, and the way that those things work together. Let's take a step backwards, one level down from the cosmic <laughs> All to, <right. laughs> to the intelligent races. And we covered this really well, I think, just a few moments ago. But in terms of the catalog that I'm working towards with this story, we're told here in the story that humans come from the line of Adam, which is a fallen race in this. There's no redemption mentioned in this notion of categorizing human beings as a superior species, as advanced, as enlightened, as saved, as redeemed. We are still using this old Augustinian language of the fall. 
while Abos or Abos, I think clearly an intelligent race, given the subtext of the conversation in the classroom, do not come from this line of Adam that is dismissed immediately as an argument by Mr. Million. And the reason why we can speculate about their humanity is only because they're all assumed dead. So I think we did a pretty good job of covering the line of Adam, the human question versus the other intelligent race. But now's the time, Glenn, to to jump in with anything else if you have it. Yeah, you're right. And I, I specifically left out the phrase referring to Adam in my recap, but you are right to emphasize the original sin. That's why Adam has kids to begin with. If there's no original sin, there were never going to be any children of Adam. There are because of that sin. If the Abos are not the children of Adam, the sons of Adam, the descendants of Adam, are they without original sin? Or is, is this going to be an Edenic primitive culture that didn't know sin? Is, is that what Wolf is playing with here? And, it, and again, this is going to be another contrast of light and dark, if that's true. This is really going to be something to keep our, our eye on. Yeah, I'm excited to dig into this because that's my instinct about this, is to think of humans still as a species related to this original sin. The aboriginals of St. Anne might be better creatures. And for our listeners who are interested in this question and don't have the patience to to read along with us for six weeks, read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, where he just goes nuts on this question. Yeah, I will say, you know, of course, listeners have heard me say before that I discovered Gene Wolfe during my obsession with Jesuits in space. There is also another fantastic book that I would recommend called The Sparrow by Mary Doria Russell, which does posit exactly this uh, sort of sentient, sentient creatures that have no sin, no original sin. This is it's a question that many religiously minded science fiction writers have, have pondered from time to time. Yeah, it's one of my favorites in terms of speculative fiction. Let's now move back one more level here to the (laughs) progenitors of the children, which of the brothers, which we'll get to in a moment. So we're going to talk about the father and Mr. Million as a dichotomy, as a binary system. We learn in this story, uh, great Glenn, you did a great job of, of kind of giving us a lot of information about Mr. Million. He's the boy's tutor. He's a robot with the face of the father in my reading. And as I mentioned, I think in the recap, their identities are so distinct that the narrator has no trouble distinguishing the face of Mr. Million from the face of his assumed biological father. The father, according to our narrator, does not show love or care for his children, though he seems attached to his crippled monkey. And of course, this imagery of the cripple or the broken person, the dwarf, it's meant to evoke, at least in like Renaissance art and uh, a whole spate of literature, moral corruption. So not only do we have a cripple, which is um, a representation of sin, we have a monkey, which is like a biological regression of humanity to be the symbol of the father in this story. Mr. Million, on the other hand, is full of compassion. He is a useful thing. He's a robot with gliding wheels. He would never break anything useful. He cares for the boys, though he's firm. But there's this other level that is intrigued by the slave market. 
I, I don't know, Glenn, if you can think of any other main differences. If you can, I'd love to hear them. But what is communicated to us at this level of the two beings, the, the, the split of light and darkness? Yeah, I think that's a great reading of these two characters. And and to riff on your observation about monkey as, as really being kind of a regressive form of a human, and then not only that, it's also broken, right? In addition to that, to really emphasize the progressiveness then of Mr. Million in contrast to the re- regressiveness of the, the monkey, that he is chrome, he's, he's metal, he's not small and dwarfish impish right he's tall he's so tall that even just to get to the top of his head an adult human has to stand on a chair as you pointed out during the recap that he is technological and shiny in ways that the father and and the symbol of the the father are fleshy and gross perhaps and and that's a really great reading but i think that the greatest dichotomy between the two of them is really about time. That what we actually see happening here in the narrator's attempt to reconstruct his childhood, his youth, is an obsession with his father, who so far we have the impression he saw only one time and very briefly before being ushered off by someone who probably was one of his father's prostitutes. But Mr. Million is their tutor, their guardian. He is their caretaker. He's with them all the time. And and Mr. Million occupies a much greater part of the narrative, but there's no emotional emphasis on who he is. He's taken for granted in ways that the, the father is not. And so within the memory of our narrator is this sense that this thing that we all, I think, struggle with, which is that we are yearning for the thing that we can't have. And failing to notice, failing to appreciate the thing that we do have. And, and, and this is a way in which, if we, if we think about it in your terms here of light and shadow or darkness and light, that the narrator is clearly not paying a whole lot of attention to the thing that is the lightness in his life, the goodness in his life, and is obsessed with this darkness. I don't know that that tends to lead to good things for people. Well, it definitely doesn't, at least in what we know of this narrator, is returning home from prison. I think you made some excellent points there. This sort of doppelganger identity or or doubling fiction, we see kind of uh, in a lot of science fiction TV tropes today. I'm thinking of like the episode of Buffy where Xander gets split into two people, but it goes all the way back to Dostoevsky, who wrote a story about a person who sees their own doppelganger and recognizes their own double and recognizes kind of the differences between them. This is also low-key, excellent science fiction movie by Denis Villanueva, who did the Blade Runner movie. There's a movie called The Enemy, which is about this doubling. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal. I can't recommend that movie enough. It's dark, as you would expect of this type of story, <laughs> um, but it's excellent. And and the reason why I'm bringing all of that up is because that is the exact sensation, the sense of story I get from reading about the narrator's experience from his father and Mr. Million, that his father has somehow split himself. And the morally corrupt and awful man that remains is symbolized 
by this regression and corruption. And though he, he yearns for him because they're biologically connected and the goodness has been turned into this machine. And that's just the sense I get from this 11 pages of the story. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, really, to put it in the, the parlance of the day, I mean, you're, you're reading Mr. Million as kind of a horcrux of the, of, of the father. That's a really great reading. I'm looking forward to seeing how that pans out. Me too. Well, let's finally get to the two brothers here, which is kind of the last big section I have. We'll talk a little about world building and and maybe reemphasize some points we brought up before. But this sense of dichotomy of the binary systems, as I'll call them, is really the most important part of these two sections of Fifth Head of Cerberus. And it's at every level of the story. It's at the cosmic, it's at the human, it's at the family, and now it's at the brothers. The narrator and David are the brothers. David is light-haired and light eyes, while the narrator is dark-haired and dark-eyed. David is interested in playing music. He pursues his own interests of literature, language, and law. He's reading during the class, like this image of defiance, of, of carefreeness, of pursuing what you love, regardless of the circumstances. But our narrator is troubled by a number of things. First, we learn that he's returned home from prison, and he's writing this story to understand maybe what has put him there. He is in a home that is abandoned and wrecked, like the ship of the ancient mariner, like Odysseus's. He has, though not in this episode that we've read, harbored a fantasy of parricide that may be a reality. He's troubled by the lack of knowledge by his own family's history. He has a dark imagination, which we've highlighted, that really speaks to his single-minded goal of achieving whatever outcome he wants rather than understanding the world as a natural system. And this also speaks to, I think, his interest in life sciences. So I don't know, Glenn, again, if you can think of any other differences, please let me know. But what I think maybe in in literature and in kind of the iconic nature of the hero's journey, does this stuff evoke in you? But also, how do you read it as being meaningful to this story? So one thing that jumps out to me immediately is a line that I omitted from the recap. When they're in the library and we're getting the introduction to this scene that we both loved very much, this very funny scene with all of the W books on the the very highest level of the library, the narrator tells us that David very rarely went up there with the narrator. I had missed the significance of that before. It just seemed sort of like a plot device to have the narrator there alone to have these stories, these anecdotes that Wolf wants to tell us. But what we're being shown is that David is not obsessed with their father the way that the narrator is. And so this obsession, which I think we can already see leads to darkness, to nothing good for the narrator, is absent from David. So I think that's another another contrast um, that I, I hadn't noticed until you started really probing this. So that that's really awesome. Yeah, but to get to your point about the hero's journey, this sort of Joseph Campbellian way of thinking about about narratives, which for most of us, of course, we we have inculcated from Star Wars, also Harry Potter, perhaps, as I've, I've brought up already. Heroes so often have to confront a villainous father figure 
in these heroes' journeys, or not even a villainous father figure, a father figure. And if if we're reading the hero's journey as a metaphor for becoming an adult, then you have to challenge your your father. There, of course, is the the Freudian reading of this, which informs Joseph Campbell, where this is also about competing for the affections of your mother. But I I think that we can really maybe even think about this in very Star Wars terms where Luke Skywalker, you know, who is going on his hero's journey, this has to culminate for him in confronting his father who is twisted and evil, who also actually happens to be mostly a robot, which is interesting to think about it here in terms of comparing it to the fifth head of Cerberus. So I think it's clear that given the narrator's obsession with his father, the darkness that's within him, but also his consideration, really his observation of the world around him, that he is someone who is trying to get someplace, that that he feels slighted, that he somehow feels less than, and wants to make himself heard, that he wants to go out in the world and do something that will garner him his father's attention. He wants to do something that will make him worthy of his father, even though he is talking about his father and all of this language that suggests that his father's maybe not worthy of him. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I, and I think were this to be more of a riff on Tolkien, we'd have David as the hero, right? We'd have the light brother who goes up against the dark father. And we'd have this representation of like ego and id that is broken out into two people as maybe it is in Mr. Million. I think Mr. Million and David are both going to end up being tragic figures in this story because they are the id of the dark father and our narrator. And we'd get in any other fantasy novel, speculative fiction novel, um, the story of David and this is Wolf's really first hint to us as readers that he's not interested in that kind of hero at all. And he will never return to this type of hero in his science fiction fantasy novels in the future. Yeah, that's a really great observation that we're not getting the blonde-haired Luke Skywalker story here. We're getting the story of the dark child the the darkness here he's our protagonist and he's the one who's going to have some kind of hero's journey here some sort of call to adventure is perhaps about to come yeah he turns the hero's journey into a tragic thing for the hero rather than a triumphant journey and i'm speculating again on this because as i've said before i don't remember a lot of this story but this is what wolf does with his other characters they are more like king david (laughs) of the Old Testament, who does have the favor of God and can't lose it because you can't lose God's favor once it's given. That would mean that God was somehow changeable, able to change his mind. But then you go through this darkness and and maybe there's something hideous about the inability to not lose God's favor. Yeah, these are all some really awesome observations, Brandon, and I'm really excited to see where this story goes uh, along these lines. Really can't wait to do our next installment. Yeah, me neither. I I really am excited to see where this story goes, especially somebody who's trying to read it with fresh eyes. But I think we've covered probably as much as our listeners will tolerate. So (laughs) 
that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Please head over to the Clay Temple Forum and let us know what you thought of this section. We love engaging with listeners who are reading along with us. It's why we do this project. So I hope you'll join us on the forum. Don't be afraid to start a new discussion. Yeah, I'm excited to engage with listeners uh, on the forum after these episodes. Next time, we're going to continue by reading pages 22 to 36 of the 1994 Orb edition. That's the, the edition you get in America. Until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>